Please be seated. Friends, I want to talk with you for a few minutes about rest and the restlessness of faith. Our Old Testament passage this morning has us at the call of Abraham, the beginning of the Abraham story in Genesis 12. God calls a man who is minding his own business, we don't really know much about him from the scriptures, in Haran, in Mesopotamia. He's there, we know he's old. And God calls him and says, go to a land that I will show you. And he gives him a promise, and he goes. And that's it. That's all we hear. We don't hear the backstory. We don't hear what Abraham is thinking. We don't hear what Sarai, his wife, is thinking. We don't hear what Lot is thinking. We don't hear what anybody's thinking. Texts like this invite us to bring ourselves into it, to wonder what it is like to encounter such a call. But the scriptures in their mysterious ancient wisdom leave it open for us. So he goes a long way, and he goes, and he gets to a land that God has promised to give him, and it doesn't belong to him ever in his entire life. He seems to believe, he follows. Where this God, we don't hear anything about how it comes, whether it's a voice, whether it's a bush, whether it gets a text message, it just goes. He goes. And he's there. And he goes from one place to another. He doesn't really have a place to lay his head, to rest. And can you imagine what this creates? On the one hand, the scriptures. And Paul will talk for just a second about the way that Paul exploits Abraham's faith to make an important point. Abraham must be trusting God here. And it's clear that that's so. But if we were to read the next chapter, we would see that there would be a famine in the land and things would get even worse than they seemed when you already went to a place where you didn't know anybody and you didn't have a place to live. And he has to go down to Egypt and he gets in this bizarre and, we have to just say, bad uh, pattern of decisions when he uh, pretends that his wife is not his wife and passes her off to somebody else. Not a good look for Abraham. This kind of thing happens over and over again. And the point of the narrative appears to be that it is not an easy thing to follow in God's promises. That it requires a kind of trust, a kind of faith. This is, in fact, what Paul seizes upon in this long letter, or a portion of the letter that Zoe read for us. That was a long reading, Zoe. Good job. Thanks. Um, So Paul's gospel, I don't know if you heard it, is that God gives life to the dead. He calls things that are not as though they are in order to bring them into being. Just like he says, let there be light. He says of the one who trusts in his son, this one is righteous with me in the midst of a broken life. But this is controversial in Paul's life and in ministry. There are people who say, that's great, Paul. But for these Gentiles, these non-Jews, who have come into into this faith, what about them and all of these laws that God's given Israel, especially circumcision, this mark of the covenant? And so Paul 
drops us in to the middle of Abraham's story in a couple passages that we didn't have read today, but which come later. One of those is Genesis 15, where we have this, God appears to Abraham. It's the scene where he leads him out into the darkness of the night, and he looks at the sky, and he says, count the stars if you can. This many will be your offspring. And Abraham is like 100 years old. And he says, hey, that's, that's great. And in fact, he doesn't just smirk at it. He believes. And it says, in the Lord's, he believed, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham's belief isn't perfect. In the next chapter, he listens to his wife who suggests that since God is like really taking a while on this promise, maybe, maybe I'm not the woman. Maybe it's my friend, or not my friend, my slave, Hagar. Um, and uh, maybe you should have a child with her. And Abraham says, oh, that's a great idea. Um, and so that's what happens. And it turns out not so good. So Abraham is in chapter 15 of Genesis, the man of faith. In chapter 16, the man of flesh. And in chapter 17 is when we get the covenant of circumcision. And in case this is getting boring, here's just the point. Uh, that Paul's argument is this. That faith... Well, here, your kids, there are kids in the room. What comes first, 15 or 17? If you're counting. 15? Thank you, Noble. Very good. 15 is first. And 15 is the passage in which Abraham's faith is counted to him as righteousness. And Paul says, look, that's what happens first. First, he's the man of faith. And the law comes later. And the point then, Paul is radical among Jews of his day, is saying this, that the law is secondary to faith. Law, following God's commandments, is in fact part of what we hold forth in the Christian faith that we are to do. But that energizing work that we are involved in, in following after God, in listening to his commandments, in obeying him, is secondary to the work of simply receiving God's good promise for us. And it seems to be that there's something in the not yet getting it with getting the land that Abraham has in the land of Canaan, that Paul is pointing to and saying, look, he is trusting in what he does not yet have. And this seems to be the parable. And isn't this what we see in the Gospel of John, what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus? Isn't it the same thing? Jesus says to this man who seems to know something about him already, Jesus says, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And being born, it's not a thing you ever chose to do, is it? It's a thing that happens to you. There's so much language of belief. We heard that famous verse, John 3, 16, um, to everyone who believes. There's so much language of belief in John. It's, there is an important fact that there's a volitional character to rebirth. God calls us and we come. We enter through the waters of baptism we submit ourselves to being reborn, to being transformed through the study of scriptures, through the practice of Christian community, to lives of generosity, to spiritual discipline. So that eventually, as we walk with Christ, we become transformed to the kind of people, into the kind of people whose presence of the in the world is a kind of sacrament, a kind of means of grace to others. 
Martin Luther, who more than anyone else in Christian history has probably within the church made this argument that works are secondary to faith, says this about faith. It's a kind of restless thing. It doesn't sit by itself. It is eager to move to good works. But this doesn't begin with our energetic effort. It begins with God. And all we do at the very beginning is accept His acceptance of us. Like Abraham, we believe that what God says about us is true, not what our eyes can see. And in that trust, He gives us new sight. So let's go back to Abraham and think about this. What is it like to listen to what God says that He will do for you, to what He has called you to do, and to say, okay, I'm going to trust that. I'm going to obey as Abraham does, but then to not immediately receive the gift that you think you had hoped for. To not not immediately walk in the fullness of that promise. Notice what Abraham does. He is a wandering altar builder. He goes to Shechem. You know where Shechem is. I know all of you do. He goes to Shechem. He builds an altar there. He goes to Bethel. He builds an altar there and calls on God. Monuments of faith. He's trusting in the Lord's care for him. And then he goes down to the Negev, the desert region in the south. It's a kind of fitting picture to what this life of faith looks like. It is sometimes a dry thing. And if on the one hand that dryness and the inability of human effort to bring about the kingdom of God points us in some allegorical way to what God is doing in the grace that he gives us in Jesus Christ, there is also maybe a second lesson for us in our own experience. What is it like if God calls you to a space of dryness? What does it do for you? I'm going to read you a short poem, if I can, from George Herbert. It's a couple hundred years old, so you have to do like a little bit of work to listen. Anglican uh, priest and more significantly, really, poet in terms of his impact. This is called The Pulley. When God at first made man, remember, it says 200 years ago, having a glass of blessings standing by, let us, he said, pour out on him all we can. Let the world's riches, which dispersed lie, contract into a span. So strength first made a way, then beauty flowed, then wisdom, honor, pleasure, When almost all was out, God made a stay, perceiving that alone of all his treasure, rest lay at the bottom. For if I should, said he, bestow this jewel also on my creature, he would adore his gifts instead of me and rest in nature, not the God of nature. So both should losers be, last stanza. Yet let him keep the rest but keep them with repining restlessness. Let him be rich and weary, that at least if goodness lead him not, yet weariness may toss him to my breast. There's a kind of restlessness that first brings us to God. Augustine said famously, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. There's a restlessness that drives us to God for the first time, but there's a restlessness that drives us to God for the 500th time. 
in this season of Lent, as we slow down and remove excess and distraction from our lives, as we fast and make an empty place within ourselves, we come into contact with our own limitations, the dryness of our lives, the finitude that is part of our experience and our, therefore our utter dependence on God. And we remember in that still and empty place God's promise, I will bless you, I am with you, my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink, come to me. In a moment, we'll come to the table here. And as we do, I ask you to consider the Lord Jesus' own experience of the journey. He was called by God to leave a land that was his, to go to another place, a place that he was promised as his own inheritance. And yet, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And he wandered with no place to lay his head. And at the end of his own life, he didn't say, now I have come into the fullness. He said this, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it with you anew in my Father's kingdom. He's fasting in heaven for you and for me, waiting till that day when we are brought with him face to face. He knows the experience of deprivation and of dryness. So as you take on some of his fast this season, you're in good company. But not today. Today we're going to feast. And in a moment you're going to come and receive his body and blood given for you and for me. Until that day when we see him face to face. Amen. Amen.